New York Philharmonic this week is generously underwritten by the Kaplan Brothers Foundation and the Audrey Love Charitable Foundation. Additional support for this broadcast is provided by the E. Nakamichi Foundation. Hello and welcome to this broadcast by the New York Philharmonic. I'm Alec Baldwin. This week we have a show that recreates the programming for one of the many concerts that we had to cancel this season due to the global pandemic. We'll hear Mozart's Violin Concerto No. 5 and the Symphony No. 1 by Brahms in performances from our broadcast archives. We open with the Carnival Overture by Antonin Dvorak. Composed in 1891, this piece was originally part of a cycle of three concert overtures titled Nature, Love, and Life. It has been surmised that the composer's aim with this cycle was to represent three distinct aspects of what he called the life force. Dvorak linked the three pieces by employing a motto theme representing nature that appears in each of them. and he further connected the dots by giving them a common opus number. Eventually, each of the three works was given a new title. These are In Nature's Realm, Carnival, and Othello, and each eventually received its own unique catalog number. While he was composing these overtures, Dvorak was invited to become director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York. And so the premiere of the Carnival Overture and its brethren formed something of a farewell to Prague when Dvorak conducted the premieres of these pieces there, just before coming to the States. These works also factored into his Welcome to New York concert at Carnegie Hall on October 21, 1892. The orchestra for that performance, by the way, was made up of musicians from the New York Philharmonic and the New York Symphony, the two orchestras that would merge in 1928 to form today's New York Philharmonic. Dvorak specifically said of the Carnival Overture that it was meant to depict, quote, a lonely contemplative wanderer reaching at twilight a city where a festival is in full swing. On every side is heard the clangor of instruments mingled with shouts of joy and the unrestrained hilarity of the people giving vent to their feelings in songs and dances." Unquote. And now we hear the Carnival Overture by Dvorak. Alan Gilbert conducts the New York Philharmonic.
Carnival Overture by Antonin Dvorak, the New York Philharmonic, was conducted by Alan Gilbert. Mozart composed not one, not two, but five violin concertos between the months of April and December 1775. He was all of about 19 years old at the time. This was during his Salzburg appointment. The concertos were undoubtedly composed for his own use as well as for the court Kapellmeister Brunetti. We're, of course, used to thinking of Mozart as a keyboard virtuoso, but what is sometimes overlooked is the fact that he was also a very fine violinist, a point our soloist Yulia Fisher made when she spoke with our producer, Mark Travis, back in 2007. I think that Mozart must have been a very good violinist as well for that time, and that's actually especially for violin concerto number one and number two. Uh, they are real virtuoso pieces for that time. It's just that for us, where we know everything about staccato and pizzicato and so, etc., etc., we feel it's not it's not written so virtuoso or showing off like. Mozart's fifth violin concerto is often given the nickname Turkish. Turkish customs, fashions, and culture were quite the rage in the 18th century, and Mozart adds a bit of Turkish flair to the final movement of this concerto. Yulia Fischer tells us more. It is written in A minor. Um, it has a lot of trills in it and accents at awkward places and a lot of dynamical uh, indications by Mozart, which is very rare. And that, that gives it a Turkish sound uh, simply when you do what he wrote down. Uh, he has a Colenio thing going on in double basses and cellos. And so it does sound like the opera, the Entführung aus dem Serail, by Mozart. So it sounds very sim similar to that. And I think that's what made it, gave it the name Turkish Violin Concerto. It may also interest you to note that the music in this Turkish section is an example of Mozart borrowing from himself. It originally appeared in the ballet to his opera, Lucio Silla. Mozart did not provide cadenzas for this concerto, but Julia Fischer composed cadenzas for all five of the Mozart violin concertos when she recorded them several years ago. So the cadenzas we'll hear on this broadcast are Ms. Fisher's own. We asked her to talk a little bit about her approach to the cadenza writing process, and here's what she had to say. The actual idea at that time was to give a spot to the soloist to show off and to uh, show what you have to say and not necessarily only what the composer has to say. But of course, if you live in 1780, then you will automatically write in the style of Mozart because you're living at that time. Now, the question is, if you write a cadenza in the year of 2005 or 2006, should this cadenza be in the style, exclusively in the style of 1780, or shall it be maybe also in the style of today? If you put it, I mean, there have been some people who wrote cadenzas to concerto uh, in jazz style or even, uh, I don't know, with Indian classical stuff in it. And I'm certainly not in favor of that, but I can understand where the idea is coming from, because uh, the idea is to, to feel completely free. Um, still, I was trying to stay in style as classical as possible and Mozart-like, but still with a lot of 
probably myself in it as well. I mean, obviously I'm not Mozart, so I can't compose as well as Mozart, so, and I'm not trying to. But um, I'm a polyphonical person, probably. So the first, especially the cadenza to the first movement is very polyphonical, actually from the second movement as well. Um, Lauren Mazel just now in the rehearsal said after the uh, first movement that the, the cadenza uh, sounds almost like Bach. And so it, it is, uh, I think it's written in style, but uh, not, not only Mozart. And now we hear the violin concerto number no. five in A major K219 by Mozart, the Turkish. Yulia Fischer is the soloist, and Lauren Mazel conducts the New York Philharmonic. Thank you. 
We just heard Mozart's fifth violin concerto. The Turkish has performed by violinist Yulia Fischer with the New York Philharmonic. Lauren Mazel was the conductor. In a moment, our broadcast will conclude with a performance of the Symphony No. 1 by Johannes Brahms. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to the New York Philharmonic this week. After a gestation period of about 15 years, the Symphony No. 1 by Brahms officially appeared in 1877. The delay was due in part to the composer's concern at the idea of being compared to Beethoven. Brahms often remarked that Beethoven's specter both frightened and inspired him. He even wrote in 1872, quote, I shall never write a symphony. You cannot imagine what it's like to hear such a giant marching band behind you, unquote. Nevertheless, as former New York Philharmonic program annotator Michael Steinberg wrote, quote, when Brahms at last brought himself to move, he moved surely, unquote. Here with more is the Philharmonic's late music director emeritus, Court Mazur. Yeah, surely or not surely, we just spoke about the meaning of the beginning of the low C with the contrabass and with the timpani and with the the whole orchestra in a kind of being, feeling the, the heaviness of the tradition of symphony. And what Brahms meant was, of course, to give the form of the symphony not a new outlook, but he wanted to make the form of the symphony the continuation of Beethoven's message. And Beethoven's message was also always very deep and was very responsive. He uh, already wanted to do something else than only making music, because as he started with uh, uh, Hungarian dances, he was uh, a very young player, and his father was a contrabassist who played very often this kind of dancing music also in his uh, early age. Of course, of the, his knowledge of tradition. And uh, he is, uh, if you will call it that way, he's a classicist. He's not a typical romantic composer. It is for us now to put him into a position in the history of music. But uh, at his time, it was astonishing because at the same time was composed the pieces of Liszt, Fantastic Symphony of Berlioz. So it was a time where you were not sure where the future of music will go to. What I want to communicate is uh, to make people aware that this is a music also still of our time because it is uh, his expression is so human, is so understandable for everybody who sits in the hall. And if the interpretation has the kind of poetry of warmth, of deep uh, feeling of the poetry of Brahms, and uh, then uh, at that moment you feel this music includes every part of your own life. It is not just to listen to, you are as a listener involved 
and this kind of richness of every kind of part of the symphony. And uh, you very often have also the feeling you have heard a lot of them. This is not true because uh, Brahms' popularity didn't come from the knowledge of um, popular melodies. It came with the knowledge of the German people and at that time, of course, as they, left, uh, as they lived in uh, Vienna, you have the influence from north and south. Therefore, his knowledge of the Hungarian music was as well as the knowledge of the symphonic music at that time, of the virtuous piano music, and even if he composed pieces for orchestra uh, like Liszt, uh, then he included his kind of different impressions he got from life and from the people around him at that time. The symphony number one entered the repertoire of the New York Philharmonic on December 22nd, 1877, with Theodore Thomas conducting. Composer-conductor Victoria Bond shares just a few more insights into this piece. We tend to think of Brahms as somebody who is confident and sure of himself, a master of his craft, but this was not necessarily the case. As a matter of fact, he was very intimidated by the ghost of Ludwig van Beethoven. It took him a long time to write his first symphony because he said, you have no idea what it's like to hear the footsteps of a giant behind you. And so he heard these footsteps and it took him a long time. He wrote several other works in the orchestral genre, but not something with the word symphony on it. That word had a kind of a magic to him that he sort of kept at arm's length until he finally wrote his first symphony. And he was not a young man when he wrote it, but it's very interesting because in the opening of the symphony, you hear the timpani go boom, 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 almost as though he's actually written those footsteps of Beethoven into his symphony. One thing for audiences to listen to in the Brahms First Symphony is the way he is able to use the classical form with the idea of continuous variation. Schoenberg talked about Brahms as being a modernist, and we often think of Brahms as being maybe conservative compared to someone like Wagner who lived at the same time. But Brahms was able to take these ideas, these thematic ideas, and develop them. You never hear them the same way uh, the second time. He always is developing, adding new information, and his themes are so beautiful. They're so memorable. When he writes a melody that's played by the horn, it is just something that, that soars as though the clouds have parted and the sun all of a sudden shines through. And let's hear the symphony number one in C minor by Johannes Brahms. Court Mazur conducts the New York Philharmonic.
Symphony No. 1 in C minor by Brahms. The New York Philharmonic was conducted by Court Mazur.